our mission, and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that, when implemented, will improve our safety, our environment and how we govern out business. We are making the world safer and we're going to have fun doing it. Four of the Mission Zero podcast. Uh, my name is Jeff Peoples, your host. And today uh, I have a very, very special guest, uh, Sarah. How do you pronounce your last name? Stogner. Stogner. I wanted to keep calling you Strogner for some odd real reason. It's better than Stoner. <laughs> I've, I've heard worse. <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah, uh, I guess, would be the very definition uh, of a well-rounded human being. She's a, a lawyer, an entrepreneur an author, a podcast host, and most famously now running as the Republican candidate for the Texas Railroad Commission. <clears throat> Sarah, I've read a quote that said, uh, well-behaved women rarely make history. I guess you probably take that quote to heart. I do. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. Uh, there are you know, just a lot of things. I know your life is probably a whirlwind right now, and, and you're running around, and I really appreciate you giving the Mission Zero podcast uh, a bit of your time. Can you start us out just a little bit about your history, where you're from, and, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> I'm 37. I'm a civilian Army brat growing up. So I was born in Huntsville, Alabama. Grew up in Florida, California. Parents got divorced. My mom moved back to Alabama, her hometown. So I went to middle school and high school in Huntsville. Then thought I wanted to be a biomedical engineer. Applied to all these really good engineering programs my senior year of high school. Realized I did not want to be an engineer, even though I come from a family of them. Took calculus and was like, yeah, you guys can have those integrals. That's cool. <laughs> um, and But had really liked economics. And so... Got a letter in the mail from LSU inviting me to go for spring testing. And so with my uh, AP credits and spring testing, I was able to graduate undergrad in three years. Met a boy, stayed for the boy for law <laughs> school, uh, got rid of that boy, uh, moved to New Orleans, <laughs> met another boy, moved out here with him, and um, moved out here in 2017 to the Permian. And has have been an oil and gas lawyer for 14 years. So most of my work has been representing operators, service companies, midstream companies in risk allocation issues and then litigation when necessary. So for those in the industry, I draft and negotiate master service agreements, things like that. And then really where I cut my teeth and fell in love with the industry was when I was litigating well control insurance issues. Okay. So, you know, when you drill a new well or you've got operations, oops. Yeah, if, it's, if you hit that table, it's going to yeah. really uh, resonate. Yeah. Sorry. No. Um, so uh, I, I really cut my teeth on on learning the operational aspects of the EMP business with blowouts. And so, you know, some, you're drilling a well or you have something happen and you've got well control insurance. Well, at the end of the day, it's all a business decision. And if it's depending on how many zeros there are at the end of that claim, how hard is the insurance company going to fight to pay it? And so I, I really fell in love with it. I mean, I really love the intellectual challenge of, I, I guess, the engineering aspects of it. I'm not an engineer, right? But I like learning. And so it was fascinating. I realized society needs oil and gas. 
it's really vilified. We've done a really poor job as an industry of standing up for ourselves and bragging about all the great things we do of lifting people out of poverty and things like that. Um, but we've got to do it the right way and we have to be good environmental stewards and we don't have, doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. And I'm tired of, I would say more of a leftist agenda claiming to be the environmental folks. Cause I'm like, no, us conservatives. We're the ones that like to hunt and fish and mm. we're actually pretty amazing conservationists. Yeah. So that's a little bit about me. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, a couple of things you said on that one. Yeah. I, I know the feeling of traveling for, a, you know, a girl or moving across country. I moved from Georgia to Texas for one Yeah. when I originally came. And um, <clears throat> your comment about the engineer, you know, I, I would say, I wouldn't say you're not an engineer. I'd say you're just not a degreed engineer. Uh, you know, about a year or so ago, I was asked to speak to about 800 high school children about uh, STEM. And they, they called me up and I was like, Do you please, please come speak to STEM. And I was like, I am not an engineer. I said, I'm not. And they're like, wait a minute, you design your own products. I said, yeah, you're an engineer. And I went, well, yeah, you're right. I'm just, I'm just, do I have a degree? No. Have I done this for quite a while? Yes, I have. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily say you weren't, but, uh, <clears throat> but uh, you know, you can be something without a degree, certainly. But um, so you're running uh, for the Texas uh, Railroad Commissioner position. Uh, it's March 1st, right, is the final date? It early is. voting's already started. Yeah, though. early voting started February 14th, and it ends, I believe, on the 25th. So for those, uh, I, would, I would venture to guess that most people in most audiences you speak to are going to fully know what the uh, Railroad Commission does. But they're essentially a regulatory commission, uh, you know, I guess regulating the function of any kind of carbon extraction, any level of the work being done, they're the regulatory yeah, authority. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good definition. <laughs> what I tell people is they have exclusive jurisdiction to regulate the exploration and production of hydrocarbons mm -hmm. through you know well bores. They have exclusive jurisdiction over intrastate pipelines, so all flow lines, uh, natural gas supply lines to houses and buildings, natural gas supply lines to the ultimate power station, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, surface mining. Okay. Okay. And surface mining, is that? Lignite coal. Oh, coal. Okay. So that's what you mean by that. Okay. All right. And so <clears throat> I saw a lot of, you know, in reading about you and what you, you know, people just kept wanting to start with, what's your qualifications? What, you know? Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, think, I have boobs. They assume I'm not qualified, right? <laughs> I, I think, you know, I think it's a little bit about your age, too. And I think it's insulting to ask you your qualifications. So I'm not going to be asking you your qualifications because I, I believe you have them. I just don't. I, I'm more concerned about <clears throat> why are you running? Like, what, what, there's got to there's something driven you pretty hard, you know, pretty heavy here to, to run for this position. Yeah, to move to Austin and yeah. take a pay cut. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. You know, I was like, <laughs> something out there is driving you. And no, I'm not going to insult you by asking your qualifications. I know you're qualified here already. So why are you running and what's gone wrong that made you want to run? Yeah, sure. Well, even though you're not going to ask me about my qualifications, <laughs> let me give you a couple for your listeners. If they don't know. Go ahead. So I am supervisor well control certified. I have spent, I would say, probably hundreds of days in the field in incident response situations, you know, at a blowout emergency situations, incident command. So I'm NIMS ICS certified. I've got my PEC safety card, my TWIC card, right? I've done all that. H2S certifications. The only thing I haven't done is I haven't done the Hewitt training. I really want to go just for shits and giggles and learn how to get out of helicopter yeah. because I like scuba diving. But 
uh, you know, one day. I I'll, did that. I'll, yeah. yeah. I, I just haven't had a justification to need to do it and pay for it. But if anybody wants to sponsor me for free HUIT training, I will come do it. <laughs> but no. Um, and so really what happened was I moved out onto this ranch last summer. Uh, my friend, she's got a 22,000-acre cattle ranch in Warden Crane Counties. Wow. And she's 35. Both of her parents are have died recently. And she's Naval Academy grad, Harvard MBA, incredibly nice. smart woman. But doesn't have a ton of EMP, you know, upstream oil and gas experience. And she's like, you know, we've got a couple wells and a couple tanks that when I drive by, they stink. And will you just come check it out? And I went out there and I started looking around and yeah, I was appalled at crude and cellars, leaking stuffing boxes, tanks with absolutely no vapor recovery, you know, just thief hatches wide open. Um, but I, I went to a couple of the injection wells because they're all water flood or water secondary recovery. Right. And around here, all the only, uh, backside, right. Braden head pressure gauges are on injection wells. You don't have to have a pressure gauge on a Braden head on a, an operating well, producing well, anything other than an injection well, but on the injection wells, all the gauges I looked at had pressure on the backside. And I was like, why? We saw one of the pumpers and I said, hey, why do you got pressure on the backside? Oh, yeah, we just did our mechanical integrity tests and it's just some bleed off. Huh? <laughs> oh, that's like the company man that told me cement shrinks when it, uh, that it expands when it cures instead of shrinks. And I was like, hmm. No, but okay. You know, I'm not going to fight you out here. So I ended up writing a letter to an operator that was going to um, come in and drill a new well. They were going to drill a new horizontal nearby. And I said, hey, just a heads up. I don't know what's happening, but I, I think you've got maybe some subsurface communication because you've got you know, pressure on your radon heads. And if I'm wrong whatever, no harm, no foul. And if I'm right, maybe I'll, I can save someone from a blowout if they encounter pressure. You know, I just said, look, if you're going to drill new, you might be encountering pressure shallower than you're anticipating. So they haven't drilled still. And now we know why, because I moved out there Memorial Day weekend on June 9th. Or let me back up. June 7th, Chevron safety guy, Pitts, who, bought, who was assigned the assets last year from Chevron, couple of their safety guys, engineer, lawyers came out. We toured. And I was like, hey, guys, look. Look at these asphaltines right here. This is nasty. Look at the – something happened here. I don't know what it was. Just uh, you know, some spots we'd found with a drone walking. Just problematic spots, you know, that you could tell, yeah. you know, are, are distressed. And, oh, yeah, sorry. Okay, we'll delineate. We'll make sure to clean it up to regulatory standards. Great. No problem. That was June 7th. June 9th. I get a call from the pumper saying he was at the Estes 24 well, which is a plugged and abandoned well, sent me a video. It was flowing water. And he's like, I'm at an old plugged well, and I don't know what happened, but I've called it into the Railroad Commission, and they're going to come out tomorrow to inspect. So I met him out there the next day with the inspector and a geologist, and they weighed, they weighed the water. They had a mud scale. They weighed the water, and it was flowing 10-pound brine. And I knew from my well control experience and clients that had spent millions of dollars on calcium chloride to weight up fluid to be able to control the blowout, holy cow, we're flowing kill weight fluid. 
where is this coming from and why is it here? No hydrocarbons, like no, no sheen, just brine. And I had and, met. And what is brine? Just yep. So brine is just heavy salt water. Okay. So produced water that's just been weighted up with something. Okay. And so we've now figured out over the past few months, there is um, about 700 feet down, you've got a salt formation, which is called the Salado, and it's just a few hundred feet of salt. And what's happening is, is you've got deeper reservoirs, you have lack of mechanical integrity in the wellbore, and so you've got formation fluids that are migrating up the wellbore and path of least resistance, they've made their way to the Salado and they eat out that salt formation until the pressure builds, till it can't absorb any more salt, it finds its next pathway and it flows to surface. And so they came out and originally they said, oh, we're not gonna, <laughs> this is just every time I tell it, I can't believe it. Chevron guy shows up and I'm like, great, Chevron's a great company, they're gonna step up to the plate. He comes out, he's like, um, I'll get a backhoe out here in a few days. And then we'll, you know, I was like, no, no, you're going to get a back out, backhoe out here today and a vac truck. Our freshwater aquifers start at 50 feet. This is in the sand hills. And if you've ever been to the beach and you've tried to build a moat, right, you pour water in and a little bit of the water stays in the moat, but most of it goes straight through. It's like you're, this, this amount of salt, you can't get rid of salt. You're going to get out here and you're going to fix this. So fast forward. A week later, the Railroad Commission lawyered up on the landowner and said, you're not coming out until, or you don't talk to us. All communications need to come through council. And I thought that the state only lawyered up against you when you were a criminal. But if you're a landowner with an oil and gas problem, the state will lawyer up against you. And now here we are, landowners spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. We've drilled six monitoring wells. We've proved that we've got radium 226 and 228 in the groundwater. And the Railroad Commission is still refusing to do anything. Okay, I got, I've got a few clarifying questions about yeah. <clears throat> some of the things you just said there. Um, <clears throat> so the well you're talking about, that's what's defined as an orphaned well? It was not an orphaned well, actually. So this was a well that was plugged. and So what's the difference between orphaned and plugged? Yeah, so orphaned is when you have no operator that is viable and legally responsible. So if you've got an operator who loses their P5 under Texas law, their right to operate, those become orphaned wells. Okay. And then the state has about $2.3 billion of orphan well liability. And how many wells is that? How, what's the number of those? Um, I don't know, but if you're assuming about $20,000 a well, which is still low, the state pays usually eight to 20000 per well, which I think that you can't properly PNA well. You can't wait. If you're waiting 12 hours on cement, there's no way you can get in and out in 24 hours and, and place and wait and tag and confirm and pressure test yeah. four different plugs, right? So um, it's thousands of well bores, probably tens of thousands of well bores. There's at least 10,000 delinquent P5s, which means 10,000 operators have gone out of business and left well bores that the state is now on the hook to plug. So um, I heard you mention regulatory standards. We've got someone, someone coming out here for regulatory standards. The Railroad Commission is setting those regulatory standards, yes. right? Who is responsible for inspecting them? The Railroad Commission. How many people work for the Railroad Commission to do that? Hundreds. Hundred. Okay, so there's a lot of inspectors out there. I think there's a – I think – I'm not positive on this, don't quote me, but I think they average one per county. Okay. Well, in some counties that would be – Yeah, impossible. Yeah, Right? Like, good luck in Midland County. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, yeah, because you know, I th- I'm thinking about it. You know, an orphaned well and a and what was the other one? The other the other the. Uh, just a plugged well. Plugged well. Yeah. So who is responsible for plugged wells? So under Texas law, the operator that plugs the well remains liable in perpetuity to ensure that that well remains plugged. And, and that company no longer exists? It becomes an orphaned well. Oh, so that's... If it becomes unplugged. Okay. Okay. All right. And um, one thing, too, uh, you mentioned blowouts. How often does that happen? I mean, I know the casual person in the U.S., when they think of blowouts, they're only going to think of offshore and the uh, the... You know, the incident that occurred a few years ago in the Gulf, but in on land it happens as well. Yeah, so okay. um, according to my well control friends, there's about one traditional blowout a week across the globe. Fire, right? Like we see yeah. like we're used to seeing hydrocarbons, fire, about one a week. Okay. Which is completely unacceptable. Yeah. And is that in the United States? No, that's in the, that's across the world. But okay. I would say here in the Permian, these these wells that like were happening in Crane County that started you know, spewing water 150 feet into the air uh, in January, those are happening all the time. So what what would you say? I mean, the, I guess that was if there's any environmental catastrophe waiting to happen or environmental issues, it seems like that's where most of it's stemming from in the oil industry right now. Is it or is it other uh, issues? Yeah, I th- I think. I think probably the majority of our environmental issues are from lack of mechanical integrity, for sure. Um, I think we've also got some legacy stuff with old pits okay. that were never properly closed. There's a fair amount of that. Okay, and you, you fast forward. You're on. You're on the. You're, you're commissioner. What is the? What is your plan? What do you intend to do with this? Yeah. So my plan is to bring transparency to the agency. Right. I think 95% of the regs are, are sufficient. We've got a couple things that I think need, like we need cement all the way up the backside in every well bore, new well bore. We shouldn't be drilling new wells and not cementing to surface and then confirming a good cement job with a cement bond log, especially on these long horizontal wells. If you don't get a good cement job, you have migration, you have flow of hydrocarbons, gas, produced water into shallower zones. What I'm learning now is we have hundreds of thousands of acres of subsurface cross flow across the Permian. And the reason you go and you hear, if you're listening to AADE, right, the drilling engineer guys, and they're talking about four and five string casing designs. And the reason they're having to increase from a traditional three string to a four or five string casing design is because they're encountering shallow flow that wasn't there historically. So where is it coming from? It's coming from deeper, it's cross-communicating. And for a long time, people haven't worried about it because it wasn't necessarily impacting the freshwater aquifers that are usually, you know, around here at least 50 to 600 feet. And, but now we know that the Rustler, which is our deepest freshwater aquifer, that's for a long time been considered a long-term potable source that you can't drink it traditionally as produced, right? It's about 3,000. It's right at the max for drinking water standards. But with minimal filtration, it would be a great source of potable water. It's, okay. it's, um, there's Not just, expensive it's, to right, do. It's very plentiful. It's relatively shallow. And it was always like a good backup for the Permian. And we've got 180,000 parts per million chlorides in the Rustler now 
because it's been communicating with the San Andres. And the San Andres is a deeper formation at about 2,800 feet that has natural oil and gas. It, ha it has been a producing zone in areas. Um, and and the San Andres is what? Is it, a, is it an aquifer or...? It is, you know, I, I don't know. It is not a, it's not a, it's not a freshwater aquifer. Okay. It's not classified as a, it may be in some parts of the state, so don't quote me on that. But where we are it's now. It's a water source is what you're it, saying. Right. It okay. is a potential freshwater source. Um, but like, in, it, it, it's salted out now. It's very salty. And it's also an injection zone for produced water. So with all the earthquakes and the reduction in the deep water injection for salt water, they are now back to injecting into the San Andres, which they had stopped because it had gotten overpressurized and they were having problems with shallow pressure, needing four and five strain casing designs. So now we're back injecting into the San Andres and we're seeing like this crane blowout, right? Because pressure subsurface, it's a wall. So if you've got hundreds of thousands of acres of pressurized reservoir, it's not you you in, you inject here and it travels it's you inject over here and it's think of it like as a solid wall and you'll get a pressure response miles away because it's pressurized throughout does this make sense yeah is it is that what's causing the mini earthquakes or is it something else causing that so my understanding of what they think is causing the <clears throat> mini earthquakes is from deep water deep injection below mm -hmm. you know 8 10,000 feet and the quantity, I mean, we're, we've got 15 to 20 million barrels of water a day that we're moving yeah. in oil and gas operations. And, yeah. and that's part of it. And then I'm also told that they think part of it may be deplete, depleting from the producing zones. Because, you know, historically in our vertical wells, you'd, um, you'd drill at 3,000 feet, you'd produce a barrel of oil, a couple barrels of water, and then you'd re-inject that water into that same zone in a water flood, right? You'd just kind of keep it in the family yeah. on location, and it would help keep your formation pressurized, it helped keep you know, fluids moving, et cetera, um, but it also helped you, need, you didn't need to dispose of it. Now, the, reason, the entire reason we have to frack, right, is because it doesn't naturally flow, yeah. And you can't re-inject it back yeah. in. And so we're taking it out. We're putting it deeper. We're putting it shallower. We're depleting it from this zone. We've got a lot of stuff going on. So yeah. I think we need a comprehensive reservoir analysis of exactly what's causing the earthquakes. But that's my general understanding from listening to the experts of what their general consensus is. So um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think of a way to... To, I don't know if summarize, but give a macro view of what you're saying. You're saying that there is a there's a lot of integrity, or I guess engineering structural integrity problems with with the, with the many of the wells that are out there, including what we're even drilling now, right? Yep. So they haven't really, <clears throat> you know, you can somewhat understand, you know, not being perfect ten years ago, fifteen years ago, but now it's kind of it's almost an unforgivable one to not be able to be able to be structurally building these things for the long term and, and, and what's going on at different levels of the earth. And you also somewhat see a threat to our natural water sources. I believe as scary as this is, we cannot fix what's happened in the Permian. I think we can manage it. Okay. But I think it's beyond repair. Hmm. Uh, well, that's, 
It's deep. That, that, <laughs> that's a little bit distressing, to say the least. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, I guess that's, a, that's almost a hair-on-fire situation right it now. It is, and if we don't control it internally... The feds are going to come in and shut us down. Why do you think that there's nothing being done? Is it just political, or is it what? it's money? You're talking. This is this is going to be big tobacco or asbestos. This is the oil and gas energy industry's crisis. Okay, so you're. This uh, is <clears throat> probably trillions of dollars. Okay, so I feel like you're. Feel like you're a little bit like Winston Churchill in the 19 early 1930s, sounding the alarm on Germany. So, mm-hmm. okay, um, you know, you, it's political, a good analogy. <laughs> um, political contributions. Uh, you know, you said that um, it's politics, it's money. You're not taking any political contributions. I'm not. Uh, that was one of the uh, <clears throat> that was the thing I really liked because I mean it really does. Everybody's got their side, and they line up on their side, and like, ooh, this this group is giving this candidate money. They're all, for the most part, on both sides of political uh, campaigns. The same people are giving money, or same corporations are giving money to the same candidate on each side. They're giving it to both, right? So there's really no um, there's no spo- unspoiled person entering these offices, typically. But if you're not accepting contributions, um, I admire that. Uh, uh, tip of the hat to you for that. So a couple of other things, you know, this is, you know, health, safety, and environmental podcast. So, you, you know, when I originally uh, was speaking with you, I didn't realize it was going to be this environmental. So, uh, <laughs> what, you know, but that's what you're here for, to teach, right? To, to, you know, you're here to tell everybody this stuff because the, the, the common person, unless they're uh, neck deep in the oil and gas business, they don't really know. And I'm not. I'm a safety and product developer. I'm not. I'm not an oil and gas guy. So even I, who spend time with these people, these workers, I don't know this stuff. So um, you had a list of three priorities uh, that I that I wanted to talk to you about as well. Uh, one is the grid, which you know obviously shook us uh, to the core last year. Uh, we've already spoken about the earthquakes and the orphan wells. So uh, the grid. Uh, can you give a little bit of an? I know it came out to some people that the grid was, you know, we, we had our own power grid in Texas and how that worked and, and, and what are the pros and cons of that. Can you just explain the situation that we have in Texas with the power grid? What's wrong and where we, what do we need to do to fix it? Yeah, so I mean, you know, Texas in true Texas fashion doesn't want to be dependent on the rest of the country. So we have a self-reliant grid and we sustain our own grid. And I think that there may be, I, th- I think my understanding is, is there's three points of integration with the rest of the country where if we really needed to, we could import and export, you know, in and out of the state. But for the most part, we generate all of our electricity within the state of Texas. And so the Railroad Commission has jurisdiction over the intrastate pipelines. They don't have jurisdiction over windmills. They don't have jurisdiction over solar panels. They don't have jurisdiction over substations or transmission lines. But they do have jurisdiction over the natural gas pipelines that get to the power plant to provide electricity. They, and so what happened in 2021 with that freeze was twofold in my understanding. One, the first failure was you didn't have critical infrastructure critical infrastructure designated so that when there is a surge of, of demand on the grid and it can only handle so much. And if, if you get to a critical juncture point, 
my understanding is it, it, it basically implodes on itself. And if that had happened, we would have all been, it would have been like a complete blackout of the state for weeks. It would have been absolutely catastrophic. So in order to prevent that overload and like essentially frying of all of the system, they shut down intentionally power to different locations. And there wasn't a good plan ahead of time of where do those priorities go, right? Obviously hospitals, obviously, right, those kinds of things sure. get first priority. But what people didn't think about was saltwater disposal facilities, for example, or natural gas compressor stations, or even you know the, some of our major natural gas fields where you gotta make sure that your pumps are running, et cetera, because the natural, natural gas is great, but unlike crude, right, we don't have a ton of storage. It's more on demand. Yeah. And so we've got a system that when everything's running, works relatively well. Twofold problems. One is we don't, we're not used to really cold weather down here, right? I mean, everyone recognizes that this was kind of an unusual event. But guess what? Just like we have to plan for 100-year hurricanes, we have to plan for 100-year freeze events. And so that wasn't done. There was a lack of communication between the various entities within the state, the Electric Commission, right, Public Utilities, ERCOT, all of these different entities that have different says. And, and, then, and then the Railroad Commission, I mean, Christy Craddock went and testified she didn't know that she had jurisdiction over interstate pipelines. That's mm. terrifying. So she's been in there 10 years. Um, so I think the, the first problem is we don't have mechanical integrity on a lot of our pipelines and facilities. So we can talk about winterization and like, yeah, you're going to pump some glycol into a pipe. Well, if the pipe has holes in it, the glycol is not going to get to where it needs to go. So we need to be intellectually honest about the condition of our infrastructure, first and foremost. And we've got a lot of aging pipelines that have not been properly maintained. They are supposed to be natural gas flow lines. They you don't have the proper separators, heater treaters on location so that as a well produces oil, gas, and water, it needs to be separated out before it goes through the lines so that you don't have, for example, heavy, sour, crude sitting at the bottom of a low pressure flow line just eating through that steel. And then what happens is, is it sits in the bottom, it eats out, and then they'll, they'll, it'll get a pole. And because the gas is, is lighter, it still floats and it takes a while, and the crude will start leaching out the bottom, and then finally it'll get a, pref a pressure differential, and you'll come out, and in the sand hills, it'll look like um, there's been like a minor burst, and that's how you find them. You'll see like a little crater, yeah, and that's where the natural gas flows. So let me get let me if I'm hearing you right. Yeah. If crude sits in a steel pipe, it can eat through that steel pipe. Uh huh. Like, so hydrogen sour, like any, right, all that stuff, yeah. I mean, um, H2S sulfites is yeah. really corrosive uh, carbonic acid. So in these places where we've got CO2 re tertiary recovery, CO2 mixes, it creates carbonic acid. That's corrosive, yeah. right? Steel and cement are not forever, yeah. right? They're 50 to 100 year solutions when they're properly maintained, but there's no cathodic protection on those little flow lines. And So who is responsible now? Who has the um, but, inspection yeah. responsibility for these these lines? Is this the Railroad Commission as well? Mm -hmm. Okay. Are, is there, and you may not know, or just ask, like, how are they, is it on a regular basis? Are no. they, okay, they're not? No. It's just when you just, they're responsible, but they're not they don't have an annual check or anything like that, pressure test I, or anything like that. I mean, look, they are supposed to 
visually inspect to maintain their pipelines. The company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whoever operates it, but they're not. Because why? Because it's expensive. Yeah, and the regulators don't enforce the regs. They don't penalize people. You know, it's like if you and I are going to go to the Super Bowl and we can't find a parking spot and we don't have any change, we're going to probably risk a $100 ticket. If you're, you know, like how important is the event? Where are you going? Maybe I'm willing to pay a $5,000 fine to get to where I need to go if it's right. But so you're saying they're not painful enough. No, I I think operators are as afraid of the railroad commission as you and I are of meter maids. It is a minor inconvenience. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Okay. Gotcha. 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 Okay. um, Well, that's interesting. And Uh, so, you know, that was the first part of the question. Okay, so you have to have mechanical integrity. Then, on top of that, you actually need to winterize and prepare for these events. Because if it freezes for more than two days, we've got serious What does winterize it mean in this, with this with the pipelines? What does yeah. it mean? I mean, some of them, it, it, it's as simple as, like, at compressor stations and things like that, having wind blockers, so building wind walls, wrapping and insulation. I mean, we're not talking about a ton. It's... Again, it's basic maintenance and then the ability to, um, you know, make sure, the one, that they keep electricity so that they can keep flowing so that the water doesn't freeze. And then, um, two, it's, you know, basic measures so that the available technology can move the water and keep everything from freezing up. <clears throat> okay. Um, one, I forgot the question I was going to ask you. I had something. Um, well, just to you know, review. I guess this was a comment I was going to make rather than a question I was going to ask. It sound. It's is it, the railroad commission largely been just a window dressing? Is it? Is it? Do you think it's just been rubber stamping for the oil and gas industry? Is that what it really what's been? Uh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. I think it would be like Wall Street electing the SEC. Gotcha. Okay. And if we called it the Banana Commission. Or something completely unrelated to the Securities and Exchange Commission, because then at least if the general public's electing them, they know what they're electing them for. Right? And, you, and you want them to change the name? I think they should change the yeah. name. I, that was, you know, the first time I'd, I guess I'd been in Texas roughly since about 1997. And when I heard someone was running for the Railroad Commission, I'm like, the rail? What is going on with the railroads? Why does there, Why is there a railroad commissioner? Is there that many railroads in Texas? I, I said, I haven't seen that much, but I guess it needs a commissioner. But uh, that's what I learned. And I was probably 30 years old or more. And I had been here for 13 years and never knew that. So, you know, it's a tough thing in Texas. And, and I guess this is the line you walk, is that so many people's livelihoods are, uh, you know, through the oil and gas business, um, there is an enormous amount of people who, who who careers in this business. I don't I don't know the exact number, but I would venture about, to get about three hundred and fifty thousand people in the state of Texas are employed in the oil and gas industry. Three hundred fifty thousand. So, which um, I guess brings me to something a little slightly uh, bent off the topic that I would you know see which see what your opinion on it is. Um, we're kind of leading towards and in, in you know not nearly as fast as a pace as someone like to believe, but we're leading towards a somewhat of a decarbonization of the world. Um, my fear is that Texas does not have a plan for that, uh, especially West Texas. And I would sit here wondering, what is Midland doing? What is the Permian doing to prepare for all of these people as it, you, you know, that, not just a decarbonization, but also the you, you, drilling has become automated. 
they're looking for ways constantly to remove humans from the equation because humans are more expensive than robots. Yeah, well, and they, humans make mistakes, yeah. right? Like humans get hung over, humans. Well, and yeah. they're more expensive. And yeah. so they're, they're trying to move them out. So I'm just wondering, do, does, is, the, is there any purview in the Texas Railroad Commission that is outside of just carbon? Or is it like, in other words, as things move forward, there's going to be more, you know, uh, different types of alternative energies. They're in Texas as well. We yeah. see the windmills. Yeah, 20%. Are you, uh, are you, are do you guys, reg- you know, do you regulate that as well? So the, the Railroad Commission does not regulate wind or solar. Okay. I think that they should. Okay. I think you need a comprehensive energy commission that regulates all exploration and production of energy. Yeah. And, you know, Texas is really exciting because you're right. I mean, if you look out, on, you go out on I-20 and near Penwell, there's you know, 1,600 acres of solar. And we've got windmills. And regardless of what you think about those and... They have a place. Right. They have a place. Now, I think personally we should we should rethink our grid and we should really look at demand and consumption. And we should maybe all of us have a couple panels on our house and a little turbine on our fence. And, right, you lose a lot of this because you can't store it. You lose it in transmission, et cetera. But um, in my view... It's here regardless, right? Yeah. We cannot stop it. And we have done a really bad job all these years of being like, this is ridiculous. No, never going to happen. I'm like, guys, it's happening. It's happening. So we need, to, we need to take control of it, and we need to help guide that bec- with a long-term plan, not someone who's got a two-, four-, six-year political agenda uh, See, that's the problem. Right, and that's why I'm running, because I don't give a yeah. shit about... I don't. I hate politics. Mm. I've always voted in... I've voted in Republican primaries. I identify as a libertarian-leaning Republican. But, um, you know, I think... It, so that was this opportunity. I was like, the only way we're going to fix this is from within. And I've, I've had this mafia analogy lately of, like, let's keep it in the family, because most of us are doing the right thing, or trying to do the right thing, but if you've got bad actors then you can't compete because if there's different standards for different people, that's not fair. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so, yes, I think we absolutely need to have a comprehensive commission. We need to get intellectually honest on decommissioning obligations across the board, windmills, solar panels, oil and gas. You know, the fact that the most expensive bond in the state of Texas is $250,000 and that we have $2.3 billion worth of orphaned wells that we need to deal with, obviously this is a problem. Half of the Railroad Commission's budget of about $100 million goes to plugging orphaned wells. In what world are you given a job? Your one job is to make sure oil and gas operators do what they're supposed to do, which includes plugging out wells when they're done using them. They don't do it. So instead of fussing at the regulators and firing the boss who's in charge of supervising, they say, oh, well, you didn't do a good job supervising, so instead we're just going to give you the money. You go hire the people and do it yourself. It is insane, and the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and expecting different results. You know, I'm sorry. Something you yeah. said earlier, I think you know, I've seen this in not just you know, this situation, but I think the point you were making is if, if the industry doesn't fix itself and the government comes in, the federal government comes in, 
that's going to be much worse. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's like, you know, it's like AOC, a self in, self-imposed. Right? Uh, you know, you, you see universities do that when they get caught cheating. They self-impose their own because they know if the if the NCAA comes in and do it, it's going to be so much worse. And the federal government comes in, you know, especially if it happens during a time of a a uh, I guess a you know a more left leaning uh, you know government if, the, if you know if the Democrats control right. the House and Senate it's right. going to be so much worse on right. Texas if right. they don't do it themselves so I really uh, that's a really good point and, and I like that point have you, you you know your living your career has been in surrounding the in- energy industry do you uh, fear any type of uh, blowback from this or in, in any kind of way you know you're challenging a lot of people I am um. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I worry, but at the end of the day, I know that I'm doing the right thing. I know I have a lot of supporters that know I'm doing the right thing, and no, I, I don't. I feel like this is this is kind of part of my mission, and I have the right training, the right skills, and you know, you believe in God or the universe or whatever it is. I I couldn't sleep at night and look at myself in the mirror in the morning if I wasn't doing something about this because I know how bad it is. And I have the unique skill set and position and I've done well in life and I'm able to take that risk. And so I feel morally compelled to do this. Well, you know, a couple of things that came up when reading about you and, you know, the one was the qualifications and I did want you to, you know, explain why you were for this job but the reason I didn't want to ask you is I didn't want to because I believe you've been asked condescendingly and I didn't want to be doing that and I think that's such bullshit so I didn't want to ask you condescendingly but I think if anyone listened to this interview here will undoubtedly know you are very very well versed in, in 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 this in this business in this industry the machinations of it you seem to be almost an unbelievable uh engineer level, uh, you know, knowledge of the oil and gas industry. You were talking about things I have never even heard of, which is <laughs> not, not, not extremely hard to do, but, uh, but more importantly, uh, I, I got an authenticity of what you, be, what you believe here out of, of what you're doing. And, and as someone who is, you know, you know, my business is safety and health and, and what you're, you're almost exclusively talking about safety and health. And I didn't know that before we, we, we spoke, it would be that much, uh, much of an important thing. I didn't realize the situation was where it was. So, uh, I, I really love your, your passion about it and it's, uh, it's good to see in person. So oh, I was, uh, yeah, so that was nice to see. And I, and I hope, uh, hope anyone that listens to this, uh, this episode, um, you know, takes a look at your, your message takes a look at your concerns and takes them seriously. And uh, they have to March fir- March 1st to vote, right? Yep. So Anybody can... but Wayne. <laughs> and look, okay. you know, I have nothing bad to say about my my challengers, right? Yeah. Tom Slocum and Dwayne Tipton are good guys. They're both industry guys. And I firmly believe that if any of us gets in there, we will do a much better job than the current. Yeah. And look, regardless of what happens, my next mission is I'm going to get Christy Craddock out of there in two years. And I'm going to get... Uh, Tom Craddock out of the house. She's the longest serving one, isn't she? She is. Okay. And you know what her qualifications are? (laughs) Go ahead. She graduated law school. She got hired by daddy's lobbying friends. Daddy gave her $500,000 to run her first campaign. He was a mud mud sales guy in charge of the Natural Resources Committee, which drafts the legislation that regulates oil and gas. So ask yourself, how does a family that came from very simple, humble beginnings make hundreds of millions of dollars regulating an industry. Yeah. 
That's, that's the Nancy Pelosi effect, isn't it? Going in as a worth $250,000 and 30 years later worth $150 million. Yep. Never doing anything but working for the government. So, yep. well, thank you very much. How can uh, how can everyone find out more about uh, your campaign information on your, your you know issues? Yeah. So my campaign was my campaign website is Sarah S A R A H the number four R R C dot com. I am very accessible. I'm available on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on. You've had a few advertising <laughs> segments. <laughs> I'm on TikTok, <laughs> the Unicorn Lawyer. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm easy to find. Well, thank you so much for taking the time for us and, uh, I wish you the best of luck. And if you get in there, I hope you accomplish all the, the hefty goals because it looks like we're counting on you. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission. Please subscribe to the Mission Zero podcast on your preferred streaming service and be sure to give us a five-star review.